Okay, if you have a Bible with you today, please open up to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. I'm currently between preaching series, recently completed our extended series on the Gospel of John, and I've yet to begin a next new series of messages. I'm, I'm using this in-between time uh, to offer what I like to call some one-of uh, messages. Uh, this one of message is from the very well-known passage in Ezekiel 37, the, uh, the account of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. So if you're there, or you can just read along on the screen, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 to 10 right now. And the scripture says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the valley, excuse me, set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Lord, we thank you for your word. What an amazing truth for the dramatic and powerful account of Ezekiel in this valley of dry bones. Lord, I pray that your word will come alive for us today, that you'd speak to deep places in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before I jump into the text, let me give you some context. Let's talk about Ezekiel the prophet, Ezekiel the book, Ezekiel the chapter. So Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel was one of the great Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel was a seer. And by that I mean the way that God spoke to Ezekiel is that he saw stuff. He saw visions. The way he received revelation was often in the, in the form of sight. Pictures would form before him. And his name means God strengthens. Uh, he was the son of Buzi, a priest. Ezekiel was himself a priest and later was called as a prophet. And he's the author of the book uh, that bears his name. Ezekiel was a prophet in captivity. He was taken uh, captive along, uh, he was taken into captive along with the short, very short reigning King uh, Yah. Ho Yahim, Yaho Yahim. 
he, that king only reigned for about 100 days. Not a very good long-reigning king. Ezekiel was exiled uh, in Babylon along with the other nobles uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And there he prophesied for the next uh, 22 years. Some prophets warn of a coming captivity. They warn or they give prophetic warnings of this problem or that trouble. But they do it from safety. They do it from outside the trial or tribulation itself. But prophets like Ezekiel or Daniel, they did more than that. They actually entered captivity with the people that they ministered to. And so at this time, Judah, the southern kingdom, was a vassal state of Babylon. It was subordinate to Babylon. It was subject to Babylon. Around the year 605 B.C., Judah, entered, uh, Judah uh, rebelled. They entered into rebellion and fought against Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. They rebelled against their Babylon rulers, <laughs> and they failed. Um, in 605 B.C., and again in 598 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar took thousands of Israelites, took thousands of Jews captive. And along with those, in the second wave of exiles was, was Ezekiel. Now, even in exile, Ezekiel was held a prominent place. He was a mighty prophet of God. He held a prominent place among the exiles, and along with the elders from Israel who were in exile in Babylon, um, they, these elders, they would still assemble, and they would go to Ezekiel regularly uh, for counsel. They would consult him. Um, unlike some other Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel's prophecies can be dated with a fair amount of precision, really more than any other. His first prophecies date back to 593 B.C. and seven years before the fall of Jerusalem, and, and his last is from 573 B.C. So that's, that's Ezekiel the prophet. The book, the book of Ezekiel is, as one of my Bible dictionary states, abounds with sublime visions of divine glory and awful denunciations against Israel for their rebellious spirit against God and the abominations of idolatry. Not exactly the kind of thing you'd like to have on your tombstone, right? How do you remember Tom? Well, about, no, I'm not going to say that. In the book, if the book of Ezekiel had a theme, it would probably be this, that God acts in the events of human history so that everyone may know him and have new life in him. Ezekiel is a book of visions, of other earthly visions. Ezekiel was one weird dude. If you think that your pastor is weird because he sees visions, just be grateful you don't have Ezekiel, okay? <laughs> visions and poems and parables and what, what one commentator phrased, Cosmic street theater, this was the life of Ezekiel. And though he prophesied some very hard things for the people of Israel, ultimately he brought a message of hope and God's mercy, as we'll see uh, in this morning's main text. So the chapter here, we're in chapter 37 of this book. So let me just kind of set it up for you. In 588 B.C., the siege of Jerusalem began. By 586, the temple is destroyed. So chapters 1 to 32 cover a seven-year period 
of prophesying warnings of a coming, coming judgment. From 593 B.C. to 586 B.C. Chapters 38, excuse me, 33 to 48, and obviously chapter 37 is part of that, they record 15 years of prophesying hope. So Ezekiel prophesied seven years warning of judgment, but then he prophesied 15 years. For 15 years he prophesied that there was hope. Chapter 37 is a message of hope to these exiled people, to a people who have been recently put into bondage and have been taken into captivity. And chapter 37 is the well-known story of the Valley of Dry Bones. Let's take a closer look at that now. Verse 1 says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. So, I read this, and, I'm, and I'm, I wonder, was this an actual physical experience, or is Ezekiel describing a vision? The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. You could read that either way. Is this a vision? Or did God actually take him to a, a geographical valley? We know that Ezekiel's a seer, so a strong argument could be made that this is a vision. But is that specifically what the text is saying, or are we just assuming that? It does say that the hand of the Lord was on him, or the hand of the Lord is on me. Right? I recognize that experience. Some of you do too. One moment, I'm not feeling the activity of God, and the next I am. Something shifts, something changes. One moment, I'm just doing my own thing, and the next moment, God's doing his thing, and he's doing it with me and on me and through me. Right? The hand of the Lord was on him. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that just prior to that, he didn't feel that sensation or that experience of the hand of God being on him, whatever that meant for Ezekiel. The hand was on him at the beginning of this. And it says, he brought me out by the Spirit. So does this mean he went into the Spirit and, and had a vision like, like John did in Revelation 1.10 where it says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And as he continues in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, After this I looked, John writes, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice I heard first, I, and a voice, excuse me, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So do you see the progression here? John heard something, and he responds to what he heard. And then the voice says to him, come up here. And then something shifts, because after that, it says he was in the spirit. Some of us might be thinking, hey, I think it'd just be awesome to hear the voice, right? But there was something more. There was an, another dimension to this. In both cases, Revelation 1.10 and 4, verses 1 to 2, he talks about being in the spirit. He wasn't, and then he was. That's a spiritual, that's a vision experience. Is that what is going on here in Ezekiel 37? Or does it mean that Ezekiel was transported by the Spirit from one geographical location to the other. Like, for example, 
when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water. In John chapter 6. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set across the lake of Capernaum. But now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. <laughs> so I guess at some point prior to him saying, It is I, don't be afraid, they were less than willing to take him into the boat. <laughs> it says, they, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. There was a transportation, a supernatural event that took place where they were in one place and then instantly or immediately, as Scripture says, they, they reached the other side. Or is it like Philip after he baptized the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 to 40? It says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azusas and traveled about. He appeared, right? Suddenly took Philip away, and then he appeared. Azusas, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. That was about a 40-mile difference. So God can do either one. He can take a human being into a spiritual experience and give you a vision and show you something that you could not any other way see, and it's not beyond his power to actually transport a human being from one geographic location to another. I think a fair argument, back to Ezekiel 37, could be made for either case, vision or actual physical transportation. I looked at a variety of translations. Maybe I could get a clue, lean in one direction or another. And most, of the, most all the translations use this phrase, brought me out by the Spirit, in Ezekiel 37. A few say, carried me out by the Spirit. E even those two phrases, I don't know. You could say it's a spiritual experience or a physical transportation. My research, I looked into the Hebrew. Maybe I could get some clues there. I found nothing conclusive. In the Hebrew, the point one way to the other. So what do we know about verse 1 of Ezekiel 37? Well, we know that the hand of God was on Ezekiel. And we know that the Spirit of God, one way or another, took Ezekiel to the middle of a valley. And the other thing that we know is that that valley was filled, it was full of bones. Verses 2 and 3. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, I can only imagine, vision or physical experience, to be in a valley full of human bones would have to be unsettling. I mean, it'd have to be disturbing, right? I mean, for me, it would be traumatizing. It would be horrifying if not for the presence of God. I remember one vision years ago where God, Jesus, took me down into hell, and I did not want to go. And even with, with Jesus being in there, it was horrifically unsettling. I just couldn't wait to get out of it. There were some important things he needed to show me. 
but I do not want to be down there. So I can, this is probably not happy fun time at this point anyway, for Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel isn't just standing there amidst these very dry bones. Scripture tells us that God is leading him back and forth among them. I think the Lord wanted Ezekiel to have a very clear picture, have no doubt of just how dead and dry and completely lifeless these bones actually were. There, was, there wasn't any life in them uh, whatsoever. They weren't mostly dead, as Miracle Max would say from the Princess Bride. These bones were all dead. Anybody ever see Princess Bride? Oh, come on. If you haven't seen Princess Bride, go home. Go on Netflix, watch The Princess Bride today. Billy Crystal plays a character called Miracle Max. He says, he's not dead, he's mostly dead. (laughs) These bones are not mostly dead. These bones bones are all dead, completely dead. Then God asks a question. Now know this, if God ever asks you a question, it's not because he lacks the answer. God knows all things. He knows the answer to the question. He asks us a question because we need to know the answer to the question. Son of man, could these bones live? Intense question. In my shoes, the obvious response would be, are you kidding me? Can these bones live? How could these bones possibly live? But Ezekiel, having much wisdom, says, Sovereign Lord, you will know. Ezekiel's focus isn't on the circumstances, but on God. He's not fixated on just how completely dead these bones actually are, but on the limitless life-giving power of his God. I kind of dig Ezekiel. Verses 4 to 6. God gives Ezekiel some very clear instructions. Then he says to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I like that there's an exclamation point there. I'm thinking this is passionate and bold aloud, you know. Prophesy to these bones, say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to these dead, lifeless bones. doesn't seem like a really happy task, right? I'm in the Valley of Dry Bones. You want me to prophesy to the dead? Man, I've been in some churches like that. That's another story. And then he tells them specifically how to prophesy. Now get this, Ezekiel is neither the initiator nor the source. God is. God's initiated this. God's the source of all this. God gives him very clear instructions. And I do love that it's passionate. I love the intensity that's in that text. So in verses 7 8, Ezekiel follows God's clear, clear instructions. He says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them. Skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Ezekiel did what he was told. And even as the words are coming out of his mouth, he saw a response. There was noise. It was rattling of bones, bones reassembling themselves together. Could you imagine what that must have looked like? And as these bones put themselves back together, if that's not enough, tendons are appearing, and muscles are appearing, and skin is covering these bodies. 
Right? Had to be amazing. Bones, bodies, form, but still lifeless. That's kind of creepy, too. I mean, it had to be both fascinating and terrifying. The awe and the wonder of our God. Our mighty God at work. So God gives Ezekiel further instruction in verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign law says. Come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. Ezekiel's given the next missing piece, the wind of God, the breath of God. The word used here in Hebrew is a ruach of God, meaning wind or breath and spirit. It's the exact same Hebrew word, ruach. It's used all three times for breath and that one time for wind in this verse. Strong's Concordance defines ruach as the spirit of God, the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, equal, co-eternal with Father and Son, an inspiring, ecstatic state of prophecy, impelling a prophet to other instruction or warning, imparting warlike energy and executive and authority, uh, administrative power. It also means endowing men with various gifts. It means the energy of life, the Ruah of God is, is that which is manifested in the Shekinah glory. And it's never ever to be referred to as a depersonalized force. It's the Ruha. It's, this is the Holy Spirit. The four winds is implying that Israel is to be gathered again from the four corners of the earth, even as they were scattered to the winds. It, makes reference to that earlier in the book, chapter 17, verse 21. It says, all his choice troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to the winds. Then you will know I, the Lord, have spoken. So Ezekiel is told to prophesy to breath, the Ruah of God, to call it to come forth. And just as before, Ezekiel follows God's instruction. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Ezekiel prophesied to Ruach, and the Ruach came. The life of God entered lifeless bodies, and they came to life. A vast army rose up and stood on feet that were moments ago a mere pile of extremely dry Disassembled, scattered, lifeless bones. Guys, this is the same breath that breathed into Adam's nostrils to bring life to him. In Genesis 2-7, when it says, Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the ruach of life. And the man became a living being. It's the same breath that Jesus breathed on his disciples after he had risen from the dead. In John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. 
and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them the wind, the breath, the very Spirit of God. And that Ruha, that life of God entered them. It's the very same Spirit that blew on Pentecost. We discussed last Sunday's message. And the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where it says, When the day of Pentecost came, and they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Oh, the incredible, life-giving power found in the breath of God. My heart's cry is, come Holy Spirit. Lord, let the wind blow again. Over four decades as a Christian, I've seen the wind blow. I witnessed the wind blowing over the, over the Catholic charismatic renewal in the 70s. I was there when the wind blew in the vineyard in the 80s. And when it blew again in Toronto in the 90s. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to my house at the turn of the new millennium. And I watched as the Ruha of God blew through the lives of everyone I knew. Messed us up. <laughs> In a really awesome way. I'm still a young man. I want to see the wind of God blow again. I want to see the Ruha of God blow in this place, here, on this island, in our church, in our community, among our families. I want to see him mess all you guys up. I want to see the activity of God, the power of God, this very Ruha of God come and blow and bring radical change. In all of our lives, why would we want anything less than that? I tell you this, having lived through it all these times, the chaos of God is vastly superior than your order. The chaos of God is vastly superior to my order. And so much more beneficial for us. Wouldn't it be nice? If we were some of those dry bones that were assembled back together, maybe you feel that way. Maybe that's how you feel, like one of those dry bones. I'll get to that in a minute. Getting ahead of myself. The application we find for this text is in verses 11 to 14. God explains the vision to Ezekiel or the experience. He says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. 
this is God's message of hope to his people that I can and will do for you just as I've done to this valley of dry, lifeless bones. God's communicating this. Just like I can take a valley full of bodies so dead that there's nothing left but dry, disassembled bones, just as I can restore them to full life, so can I restore you. And so can I restore this nation. So what does this mean for us today? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? For the Charlottetown Vineyard? For this city? For this nation? It means this. It means that absolutely nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's impossible. Even death itself is subject to his awesome power. Death is no match for the life of God. No matter how long death has had its grip, the Ruah of God is stronger still. The application is this. There's hope for you today. There is hope for you today. The Spirit of God lives in your heart. The very Spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead. The very Spirit that breathed over this valley of dry bones and brought those bones to life, that's the Spirit of God that lives and dwells inside of your heart. Not a little sliver of Him. Not a miniature portion. Not a little dabble, do you? But the full deal. He lives within you. The God of hope has made His home in your very heart. There's no situation nor any circumstance of your life that's beyond the matchless power of the Spirit. None whatsoever. But we were worshiping this morning. I was sitting in the back, and this is what I sensed, that there was someone uh, here today that was feeling um, overwhelmingly discouraged, maybe even hopeless is the right word. I don't know who it was, but I could feel it. And I felt like God wanted me to let you know that today is just a snapshot. It's not the whole story. Actually, this was the imagery I got. That your life is a book. And that what you're feeling right now, the, the, the discouragement, the overwhelming discouragement or despair, this hopelessness, it's not the story of your life. It's not even a chapter. The Lord wants you to know it's not even a page in your story. It's one word on the page. That's all that this current circumstance is. That the story that he has for you is grander and greater. And you haven't seen the whole story yet. But truly, he is the God of hope. And he has good things in store for you. He has amazingly good things in store for your future. So, can we have the worship team come back up? And uh, I'm not sure where Neil is, but we have a worship team come back up and prepare to lead us through a a final song. And as they do, as they come together, if we could um, just listen to this one final verse. This is from Romans chapter 15. And this is what I thought of as I read the, the application that God gave to Ezekiel from chapter 37 in those verses 11 to 14. It reminded me of this, this verse that Paul wrote. Uh, to the Romans, chapter 15. 
he prays, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are some of us, I think, today our hope tank is, is, is running low and it needs to be filled again. So if you need hope today, then I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. If you feel like, hey, I'm one of those dry, lifeless bones, then please, I want you to come forward for prayer today. If you need the wind of God to blow on your circumstances, then come forward that we can pray for you this morning. If you want the Ruha of God to blow over this land and to blow through this community, then I ask you to please stand and pray with us as we do a final song.